You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. Uh, I want to take a little bit of a detour this morning. We have been looking at 1 John, just going through 1 John verse by verse, and it has been beautiful as the Lord has been just renewing our vision of, of himself uh, through the book of 1 John. It's been amazing. But I, I just want to quick, take a quick detour in light of something I feel like the Lord downloaded to my heart uh, during a time of prayer right here as we launched the House of Prayer. So two weeks ago, we started a House of Prayer here at LifePoint beginning to open up our church throughout the week for the people of God to come and to gather and to really tend to his presence, to minister to the Lord throughout the week. It's been amazing. And uh, the Lord drew me to Psalm 27 and really began to speak to my heart. And I want to share that with you this morning. Uh, I really feel like the Lord is like bringing a purifying work to his church, really uh, focusing his church in this hour. And it goes beyond just us. It goes beyond just life point. I think that right now the Lord is simplifying his church. And Psalm 27 speaks to that very thing. My heart, my desire, and I believe the Lord's intention for the church is for us to be an authentic people that are uh, truly loving him and devoted to him throughout the week, not just on a Sunday morning, not just when we're standing on a platform, not just when we have to put on a smile, but throughout the week, Monday through Saturday. And I feel like we've been contending for that, but if there's anything that speaks to that, it's, it is the place of prayer and it's corporate prayer specifically because there is nothing, there is nothing um, amazing about corporate prayer. Corporate prayer is humbling to say, we're gonna give sacrificially of our time we are gonna give in an uncomfortable way of the uh, valuable time of our week to come and seek the Lord. We're gonna give beyond just a Sunday morning to come and press into the presence of the Lord, minister to the Lord. It's sacrificial, I believe it's beautiful, and I believe the Lord is shifting the church towards that sort of authentic expression of Christianity that happens throughout the week in community. Uh, it's people actually locking arms together throughout the week, not just seeing each other Sunday mornings, but as they live life and they're coming and they're going, much, much like the book of Acts. And, um, and so I believe the Lord's doing that in this hour, and I want to speak into that. You know, I, I have a real um, interest in thrills. I'm a thrill seeker. I love theme parks. I love thrill parks. Um, but, but thrill parks, theme parks, you know it's a show. There's been a few times as a family, we've gone onto a, a thrill ride and it breaks down mid-ride. And so then you get the, the cool treat of going backstage. And it's, it's one, you know, a couple steps off the ride to backstage that you realize how shallow the ride is. It's all a facade. It's all, it's all just, you know, smoke and mirrors. It's all just covering. And as you peer backstage, you realize, oh, this is, this is ugly. This is hideous. And sadly, if we would be honest, how often does that happen in the church? You know, we can be impressed on a Sunday morning. Wow, this is beautiful. This is amazing. God is amazing. And then you take one look in a, in a back classroom in a hallway and, and you realize, oh, this is, this, is not, this is not beautiful. This is not worthy of the Lord, of Jesus himself. But I feel like the Lord just confirmed this. Thursday night I gathered here with our elders and our trustees, just an amazing group of humble servant leaders. And these are, in the Lord's upside down way, the, the leadership for the local church. Elders, trustees, these 
these ones who provide stability and covering for the church family. We met in a windowless back room of the church of which no one would see, no one would know. And we're seeking the Lord. We're, 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 we're talking about what the, the things the Lord is teaching us right now. And there's this authenticity to it. And I believe that is the Lord's heart for the church is that as you peer deeper into the to bowels of the church, what you see is people on their knees seeking the Lord. What you see is humble servant leaders sharing their hearts truly for Jesus, truly for the Lord in the city. That's what you would see. So not a perfect church. I'm not talking about perfection, but I'm talking about a true church, a true people devoted to the Lord, authentic. And this house, house of prayer is such a um, investment into that. It is... Um, an investment into that authentic expression of Christianity that happens throughout the week. And so I encourage you to come join the house of prayer as you can, or honestly join us online. The day and age in which we live, the Lord is breaking the, the church out of the walls. And the fact that we have modern technology where you can join house of prayer and join into what the Lord is speaking to our church right now through technology is such a beautiful gift. So uh, join us online if you can't join us in person. Um, but Psalm 27 the key verse is verse four. I'll read that before we read the rest of it. One thing have I asked of the Lord. This is David, King David, leader of the, the golden age of Israel. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So King David, some scholars believe this, he wrote this early in his life. Other scholars believe he wrote this later in his life. I, I tend to lean towards the latter. I do believe it was later in his life and I do believe it was at a time when he had surveyed the earth. He had surveyed his kingdom. He had surveyed the feats and the, the accolades of what it means to be a successful person on the earth. And this was his, his takeaway. This one thing I ask of the Lord, to be with him, to dwell in his house, to gaze upon his beauty. David had had looked around, he had gazed throughout the earth, surveyed the earth, and his one focus now in this age, and this became his legacy as well as he passed the mantle to Solomon, his one focus would be the beauty of the Lord, the presence of God, looking upon the Lord. So I wanna to talk to us about focusing on Jesus, allowing the Lord to be our singular focus, a single eye for the Lord. Do you know in this age, in this busy, loud, noisy age that we live in, that multitasking is impossible? That multitasking is a, it's a myth. Do you guys know that? A few years ago, there was a really interesting article um, written in Forbes magazine, and, it, and the, the title was, uh, Multitasking is Not a Thing. Or there's no, it's actually, there's no such thing as multitasking. And it laid out three realities that come with this myth of multitasking based on all these studies he, he pulled together. And this was years ago. I think it's interesting that it's only become more and more true and more and more relevant. But first thing is the myth of multitasking, if we give into this, it actually leads to less productivity. This whole idea that I can, I can outsmart everybody else, I can outsmart what we know to be intuitive, and it actually leads to less productivity. Secondly, 
It actually uh, deteriorates your brain. It actually impacts your brain in a negative way. You become dumber <laughs> by trying to multitask. It actually does change the, the chemical makeup of your brain where you, can, you, can, you can't hold your attention on things as long. When you're trying to constantly move from one thing to the next, you, your, your brain actually begins to deteriorate. And thirdly, it leads to greater depression and anxiety. Like this is, the third one is based on this study in England. I think it's only fascinating, this, was, this article was written eight years ago, that that's become even more rampant in this noisy, noisy, loud age that we live in, where there's always something vying for your attention, always something screaming in front of you, give me your attention, I am urgent. Please look at me, look at me, flashing things everywhere. And we all think we can outsmart it, but it's leading to greater and greater depression and anxiety, and that's been proven to be the fact. It's important for us to tell ourselves that, obviously, physically in this age, we shouldn't uh, try to um, outsmart everything. We need to simplify our lives, but the most core level of our being on a spiritual level we cannot multitask and the Lord is calling us as a church to focus on one thing, on him, on he himself, the head of the church, that he would be our one focus. Yes, that would come out of individuals all making him the one focus, the central focus. And Pastor Tony hit on that beautifully last week, talking about Jesus at the center of it all. But in the church, there is no such thing as multitasking. Jesus is meant to be our main aim. And David got it prophetically in Psalm 27. This one thing. So in an age where the church can be seen and known for all sorts of things, really one thing should define the church. And it's Jesus in their midst. It's the presence of the Lord. He himself, the beautiful one. It's interesting that our eyes can only focus on one thing at a time. There is such a thing as peripheral vision, but really your eyes are still just focused on one thing. And, and you may say, but God gave me two eyes. But if you're looking at two different things, you gotta go, you gotta go see a doctor. <laughs> your eyes, even with two of them, you're meant to look at one thing. And David, David said that, this one thing I desire, this one thing I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. So we are called to focus on Jesus, to look to the Lord al alone. I believe the Lord is purifying his church in this hour, bringing us back to a simpler way of life. And it sounds so refreshing to my soul and I hope it catalyzes some, some sense of refreshing hope in your heart as well. But Jesus, actually John the Baptist said this of Jesus in John 1.29, this is on the screen. He pointed to Jesus at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and said, look, there's the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He really defined for us what Christianity is. It's looking at Jesus. Look, the Lamb of God. The sacrificial, atoning, perfect sacrifice that would come and be the only answer to take away the sins of the world. Look at him, look at him, look at him. And the writer of Hebrews said it very similarly. He said, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. So, the church can be looking at all these things constantly distracted when in reality, the Lord is saying, look at me, look at me, the author and the perfecter, the originator and the feeler of all things for the church. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, as Pastor Scott quoted earlier, 
we with unveiled faces, we're beholding the glory of the Lord. We're beholding the beauty of Jesus. We're being transformed into his likeness from one glory of, from one glory to another. That is the essence of what it means to follow Christ. It's the essence of Christianity. It's beholding the Lord. That song was so beautiful that we sang earlier. It's, it's the essence of what I believe the Lord is calling us to right now. So let's look at Psalm 27. A single eye on Jesus. I, I feel this unction in my heart to speak this because I believe this will answer many of the ails in people's hearts this morning, ails in the church and pray that you can receive it. Let's just pray before we read this entire Psalm. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in your church in this hour. We thank you that we get to be alive in this moment in human history. It's, it's exciting, it's, it's thrilling and we wanna be part of the, the real deal. We wanna be a part of an authentic people of God in this hour, humbly desiring to follow after you and be obedient and submitted to your heart. So God, give us receptive hearts this morning. Give us humble hearts. Would you just receive from the Lord a grace? God, I pray you'd pour out your grace on every individual. Pour out your grace upon, upon me, upon us as a church family to receive from your word this morning, your recalibrating word, your word that is sharper than a two-edged sword that, that cuts into our hearts and helps us to define between soul and spirit. Would you do it this morning? Give us grace to receive. Lord, would you cut through the distractions? Would you cut through the noise? Would you cut through the self-induced ADD of our generation? Would you, God, would you cut through discouragement? Would you cut through fear? Would you cut through the, the attacks of the enemy and bolster up your church right now? Strengthen us like only you can. Feed us with your word in your mighty name, amen. Look at Psalm 27, it says this, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Or cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. That's a, 
a phrase we've been speaking a lot into as of late, wait for the Lord. It's the superpower of the church in this age. Wait for the Lord, that he would be our strength, that he would be the one that is seen to be our source for all things. Wait on the Lord. So I, I wanna talk about focusing on Jesus and what that creates in our lives. But before we do that, I should clarify, you know, when David is saying, this one thing that I seek, this one thing that I, I desire, to look upon the Lord, to gaze upon his beauty, what does that mean for us in this New Testament age? We don't live in an age with a temple. We don't live in an age where we have to come to a physical location to, to wait upon the presence of the Lord. Acts 2, the spirit of God has been poured out upon us in this age. So what does it mean for us? I really feel like there are four ways in which we look upon the Lord. One is through worship, which you can do anywhere, anytime. You don't have to have Pastor Scott leading you in an amazing worship. Sunday mornings aids in that, I believe, for sure. Like there is something sacred that happens when God's people join together in worship. But we are worshipers and when we worship, we're looking at the Lord. We are recalibrating our hearts to say, God is exalted above my situations. He's lifted high above anything I'm facing. He's lifted high above this anxiety that I feel. This, the enemy is roaring his face. He is exalted high above it all. Worship looks to the Lord. Second is prayer. Prayer is actually seeking the face of the Lord. We just read that in Psalm 27. His heart says, seek my face. My, the Lord is calling him to seek his face and my heart says, seek his, his face I will seek. We're actually looking to have relationship, face-to-face -face relationship with the Lord. That's the language of scripture. Prayer is that. Third, it's the pro proclaiming of the gospel. Every time the gospel is proclaimed, either in a church gathering or in this modern age through media, Jesus is seen. And people's eyes, through faith, see Christ. That's what sets us apart from the apostolic age when the apostles actually saw Jesus with their eyes. They actually had the privilege of seeing him with their eyes. We, we live in an age where he is proclaimed with words and with deeds and, and Jesus is seen in that way. And the fourth is through the body of Christ. That's the imagery. Two primary Im images of the church that are helpful in this regard. One is we are the temple of God. So we together as the collective of peop people are a people that host his presence. And we're also called the body of Christ. So when we're together, when we lock arms together, when we are in community together, people see the beauty of Christ. And that's a huge reason why we need community. So that's the one aim of the church is to look at the Lord in all those different ways. But what does that do to our life? What does that accomplish? I believe David speaks to that. He speaks to the reason why he was so adamant about this being his one desire, the one thing he seeks after. And one is the first reason, or the first thing it will accomplish in our life is it steadies us. A single eye for Jesus will steady us. Verse one, he said, the Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. In verse five, he says, he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. So the Lord becomes the steadying, the ground, the, the ground that we walk in, the, the steadying force for our life. As Hebrews 6 says, the anchor for our soul. So, so often we feel like 
One week we're over here, another week we're over here, one day we're over here, the next day we're over here, we're just tossed to and fro. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, we are steadied. So the real like rationale to why we're tossed to and fro is because our focus is on all of these other things. Let's honestly, let's just do some soul searching. I speak to myself as well. When I find that I'm tossed so easily from one side to the other, it's probably because my focus has been on other things. My focus has been drawn to, to the left or to the right rather than straight ahead on the person of Christ. A single eye on Jesus will steady us. It's what gives us our footing. Just think about that word insecurity. We usually think of the word insecurity just in the realm of like being self-conscious. But insecurity goes beyond just being self-conscious. If we're self-conscious, we're putting, so, we're, we're putting undue value into what other people think. But there's other sorts of insecurity. What Pastor Sheena was talking about earlier with finances. It's a huge issue in our lives of placing our security in, in our net worth or the things that are, the material things that are around us. The cure for that is to put our gaze on the pearl of great price himself. Like we sell everything else. Like everything else becomes as Paul said, worthless. It becomes like garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Everything else becomes of such little value compared to that treasure that we've buried in a field, that we've put every, we're banking everything on this one. He is our everything. It steadies us. And whether, whether we are rich or whether we are poor, we are on firm ground. We are on steady ground because our focus is on Jesus. And I pray that over you. I pray that over every person that there would, the Lord would lead you as a good shepherd into steady ground, which is with your eyes fixed on him. Verse 11, in that same way, it says, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Despite what's going on around, which we'll talk about next, despite enemies and actual attacks coming against our life, we walk on a level path. So not just when things are going well, but even when things are going awry, when things are quite difficult in life, you're on this steady ground. All other ground, you declare, is sinking sand. This is the steady ground of Christ himself. So a single eye on Jesus will steady our step, will steady us. Second is this. A single eye on Jesus, a focus on Jesus, will overcome the enemy. This is the beautiful partnership that Christ has invited us into as his church to be participants in this great cosmic battle of overcoming the enemy. He defeated the enemy through the cross, through the resurrection. But yet in this mysterious way, the enemy still runs rampant. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. So why he still has authority on the earth, I do not know, but we trust the Lord in this hour that he has put us in a position to win and not to lose. He's put you in a position not to see you fail, but to be called an overcomer, as Paul calls us in Romans 8. To be more than conquerors. So verse two, it says, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. And think of King David in the context of his life. He was one who enjoyed decades of peace in the middle of his reign, but coming into 
coming into the throne was marked by constantly being attacked or pursued by King Saul. The end of his life was marked by, by treason, by his own son, by his family, by Absalom. I mean, he had a difficult life where he saw this often, where enemies would rise up against him. And would it deter him? Would it, would it be the, the thing that throws him off the rails? Or would he be resolved in his pursuit? And in verse four, he says, this one thing I desire is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, even when attacks come around me. Verse six, it says, now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. So he understands that although the enemy is rearing his face, that we have the last we have the last word because of Christ, because of the victory of Jesus. And verse 12, give me not up to the will of my adversaries for false witness has risen against me. They breathe out violence. So choosing the voice of the Lord over the voice of the enemy. So we overcome the enemy by applying the work of Christ. And this allows us to not be deterred, not to be thrown to and fro by, by the enemy. There's kind of three areas that I feel like we need to apply the work of Christ in a consistent way. One is obviously overcoming sin. Sin is still the enemy's like, chief way of coming at us, combating, combating us the same way he attacked Jesus. He attacks us, he tempts us. The enemy attacks us in those ways and we overcome it by applying the work of Christ knowing that Christ has saved us from sin. He saved us both from the consequences of sin and allows us to actually step into a victorious life with Christ. Secondly, we apply the work of Christ to the flesh. The flesh is the old you that you can now consider dead. Scripture actually says we can reckon the old self dead. We've been crucified with Christ. We also apply the work of Christ to man-made religion or man-made tradition. These traditions that don't lead to life, traditions that actually hinder us from being authentic in our relationship and our pursuit of the Lord. Tradition is much more about performance and impressing others rather than impressing the Lord. And so every time we throw aside tradition, we're applying the work of Christ, saying, God, you are my heart, you are my focus. We apply the work of Christ and we overcome the enemy. I wanna encourage you with this. Do not be discouraged by attacks. Do not be discouraged by the battle that, that wages in your life. Like the essence of pursuing anything of worth will come with certain opposition, will come with certain attacks from the enemy. Otherwise, you're probably in idle waters. You're probably just treading, uh, treading water at that point. You're not taking new ground for the Lord. So I encourage you to, to take heart in the midst of the battle. Don't be discouraged by the fact that the enemy rears his face to take you down. It comes with the territory. And um, I read that in the Gospel of John, I think it was two weeks ago, that because they hated Jesus, they'll also hate us. So as we follow Christ, we have to understand that there's going to be opposition, but a single eye for Jesus will allow us to overcome the enemy. We won't be deterred by what the enemy says because we know we're, we're following a victorious king. You guys tracking? Third is this, a single eye for Jesus assures us of hope. It assures us of hope. Verse 13 says that I believe that I shall look 
upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. It's the essence of hope, something on the horizon that is better today. If you don't have something better on the horizon than what you have today, it's called despair. You need hope and our hope is the person of Christ. Scripture actually calls him our living hope. So he lives today, he has been resurrected from the dead, he is our living hope and a single eye for Jesus will convince your soul of that very thing, it assures us of our hope. We need to be able to look to the horizon and allow that faith to well up in our hearts for something better than what we see around us. As the enemy attacks or as struggles come our way or as trials and tribulations come our way, hope becomes an actual person. Not just good thoughts, not just positive thinking, it becomes a person we see on the horizon and we lock eyes with him and, we, and, and all of a sudden we're emboldened to do anything as Psalm, the psalmist says here. Hope is like, it's like a compass when you're feeling completely disoriented, you don't know which way is which, get on your knees, fix your heart on Jesus, and you will discern that true north, which is the person of Jesus, and he'll give you the next step, and the next step. Me and my son, we took this trip to the Grand Canyon last March to take him on a rite of passage as he turned 13, and um, we were using GPS, we, we had a compass, we had a physical map, but we were using GPS, so that's the cheat code. Um, and we wouldn't always have the GPS out. Sometimes we would be traversing the trail, this was unmaintained trails on the, the eastern backcountry of the Grand Canyon. So sometimes we'd be traversing the trail just by you know, footmarks of others that we see, or um, one little help that hikers leave for hikers coming behind them is something called cairns. Cairns are stacked rocks and hikers place these, these cairns throughout to help others uh, or some to trick others as we found out. So sometimes we would be walking along and we see some cairns and we'd say, oh, hey, I think we should go this way and we'd go that way and we'd realize this was either a dead end or kind of a, a dangerous situation. And so we'd pull out the GPS and we'd realize we were like, like our trail was like we were way off in the boonies and we'd have to go back and make our way back. Christ is our GPS. He is the one that we, like we've realized, we've wandered off the path. Like we have, we've taken this long detour. Things have gotten quite murky. They've gotten quite foggy. And then we look to Christ our GPS and realize, oh wow, okay, I need to go back to where I started. I need to go back to the trail. I need to go back to that, that firm footing in Christ. And that is Christ, our hope and our glory, our living hope. He's really a person. And a single eye on Jesus will assure us of that very thing. Fourth is this, a single eye on Jesus will restore joy. There is this almost like paradoxical, oxymoronic reality of life with Christ, which is joy, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of uh, the enemy attacking. Look at verse six. Now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. I mean, think of the context of that verse. Enemies are assailing him. They're attacking him. He has foes all around him. Life is 
difficult, but yet he says he knows he can get to the secret place with the Lord and offer up a a joyful sacrifice of praise. He knows he can get in the tent of the Lord and make this melody to the Lord that doesn't make sense to the world, that doesn't make sense to other people. And that's what happens when we have a single eye on Jesus is we have this joy that's restored. The absurdity of joy in the midst of the trial. I pray that that would be a revelation in your life and it would be an experience in your life. What joy is not, and this is a, uh, a common misunderstanding about joy. Most people think of joy as just smiling, just put on a smiling face. They think of joy as happiness. Joy is an internal reality that only Holy Spirit can impart upon your life. So it may not result in you smiling in that moment, but there will be a true revelation of the certainty of Christ, a real revelation of the certainty of his plan and his purposes, and there'll be a true courage deposited upon your life, which is joy. It's an assurance of faith, it's a confidence, it's a boldness, it's a courage. And oftentimes it does result in a smile on your face. But it's, it's more than that. Well, so what I'm not saying is just smile. You don't have to just put on a smiling face. No, I'm saying get with the Lord, focus on Jesus and allow him to give you a revelation of what true joy is. A true revelation of truth in the midst of other opinions and other voices swirling around in your head. That the joy of your salvation would be restored. Christianity, as I read earlier in 2 Corinthians Chapter three, verse 18, is supposed to be from glory to glory. So if any Christian has ever told you that when you first encounter, the Christ, when you first encounter Christ, that those are your best days, they've, they've lied to you. Your best days in Christ are ahead. They truly are ahead. It's from glory to glory. So you start out, you're born again. Yes, it's beautiful. It's, it's first love. But his will for you is for you to continue in first love. And the, 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 the way that's possible is by continuing to focus on Jesus. And that first love is actually cultivated into something so much more mature and so, so much more beautiful than even where it started. That is the Lord's will for your life. I'm gonna invite Dr. Jancy to come forward to the keys. I believe the Lord is calling us in this hour to have a single eye for him. In a single eye for him in, a, in the context of us as a church community will be a much simpler church. A much simpler church. A church built on looking at the Lord. A church built on prayer. That phrase, a church built on prayer, is a phrase I actually got from my father. My dad, who's not a pastor, he's a, fire, a retired firefighter. He would have that phrase often where he'd say, you know, our church, our home church, it's built on prayer. And he would share testimonies about the Lord's provision, the Lord's breakthrough that would come through, not through fancy preaching or amazing music or amazing productions, but through a humble people devoted to prayer. A church built on prayer. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.